Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest. That is the one and only, and there are none like him, Lieutenant Colonel Derek Williams, or as we more affectionately know him, Kiwi. Now, I've asked Kiwi onto the show today because I have to say he is without a doubt one of the most thoughtful officers that I've ever worked with over the years in terms of reading and thinking deeply about nuclear issues. And he always gives me something to think about when we have a conversation. So with that, welcome into NucleCast, Kiwi. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate the uh, the kind introduction and nice words and uh, just happy to be here and be on the podcast to talk about uh, these important issues. Well, so there was an article that came out on the 17th of March uh, at War on the Rocks called Launch Under Attack, A Sword of Damocles by Natalie Montoya and Scott Kemp, uh, two faculty up at MIT. And the article focused on what they call the nation's launch on warning or launch under attack ICBM policy. And you and I had a discussion about this and you made some great points and I thought it would be interesting to have a discussion on Nuclecast about that topic because it's one where there's a lot of, of misunderstanding for one. And so I thought we could discuss this article and this, this broader idea of our launch policy. And so with that, I'll let you sort of dive into the article. Yeah. So let's just start with kind of what was the premise of the article and what was their overarching argument that they made kind of so we can recap all the listeners onto, to what they were really saying. So they started out with their real concept is the U S option to launch under attack is dangerous. It's provocative. It's unnecessary because the ICBM leg is already survivable enough to be able to absorb an attack and be able to retain approximately, they calculate 102 to 205 ICBMs after an attack. And then furthermore, after being able to absorb that attack, uh, they believe that the ICBM leg would have no loss in deterrent capability and in some cases be actually more effective. And they believe this because the adversary warheads that are used to attack our Minuteman 3 are actually the same warheads that we'd be trying to attack in a counterattack. So they offer this counterforce balancing kind of unfavorable exchange ratio argument. And therefore, they believe that this is a something that we could easily get rid of and actually not reduce any of our capabilities. 
So let me start off with, with sort of one question. And that is, if you read the article, they call it a posture. Then they call it a doctrine. And then at the very end of the article, they call it an option. Now, I think you would agree with me if I were to say we do not have a launch on warning doctrine or policy. That's absolutely correct. But but we do have an option. And I think part of what they do is they conflate the three the three concepts of posture, doctrine, and an option. And they never really say in the article that we should never have the option. They always say we shouldn't have a policy or a doctrine of launch on launch on warning, launch under attack. And so I guess I would, if I had the option to talk to these folks, I'd say, Hey, well, okay. So can we agree? It's not a policy and it's not a doctrine. You're, you're conflating an option. That's the word you, you use that is actually correct because no president and you know, you and I have worked in this field for a very long time and we understand what our actual policy and doctrine is. And, Therefore, wouldn't we want to preserve the option, which, of course, we don't have to exercise? No, absolutely. I think that they're they're really conflating two different things in a kind of attempt to be able to confuse the reader and then implant certain concepts into the reader's mind that sound more dangerous than they actually are. One is the part that you're talking about with the doctrine, policy, and then all the way to the option piece. It is an option. It's not a requirement. And they make it sound like it's a requirement and it's going to put pressure on the president to make a snap decision with incomplete information. And that is absolutely not our policy. We have an option to be able to execute this if the president deems necessary. Additionally, they start to conflate also launch under attack with launch on warning to be able to then make it sound even more dangerous because it's when you start hearing launch on warning, you start thinking, well, is this even before they've launched missiles at all? How do we even know it's an attack? We have no idea what's going on. Fog of war, confusion. And therefore they try to make this, this is what's going to create that miscalculation, misunderstanding, misperception that's going to lead us down the path to a nuclear conflict. And a, and a large scale exchange when that's not exactly what we're discussing when we talk about the launch on or launch under attack option for the president. Now, there was a second part that they, they spend a good bit of time talking about what they call mistakes, uh, miscalculations, where we've had somebody, you know, they give the example of a. Uh, a training tape left in and therefore there was a second, you know, a period in which folks thought it will, you know, is this real? And they, they listed a, you know, a handful of examples and said, Oh geez, listen, this is really bad. I mean, we, you know, we could have an inadvertent exchange. And I, I guess the question I had was, well, what was the result of every one of those examples? And the result, of course, of every one of those examples was that nothing happened, was that our system of redundant safety and security caught 
you know, every, you know, if there's a mistake and it's, there's something called the Swiss cheese model of safety. And it was, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, the, it was a business school professor who developed this idea of, of human error. Um, I can't think of his name, but the idea was that it, you know, things are like, uh, you know, all things worth human humans involved is like Swiss cheese where there are flaws, there are holes in the cheese. But the important thing is that no hole goes all the way through the slice, the piece of cheese. And so therefore you have these layers. And if there's a mistake in any one layer that the mistake in the next layer will be somewhere else such that you catch the mistake in the previous layer. And that's exactly what we've always done. And so it, it seems, you know, the, the, the hyperbole of pointing out and, oh, by the way, our systems have gotten much better since 1979 or 1984. You know, these, these are sort of 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 year old examples. And, and it's not the same. Any thoughts on, on that part of the argument? Well, the, the first example they use to kind of kickstart their, their article talks about parking a truck on top of a silo to prevent the launch and all this other stuff. Well, that's why we have open ocean targeting. So their first example is immediately one of those that, that is just a red herring for their argument because if there was going to be some sort of accidental issue, well, that's why we open ocean target and we don't have our weapons targeted uh, directly to an adversary. That's that's not something we've done for a very long time since the end of the Cold War. We started to do this open ocean targeting piece. So that was one piece. Another piece is uh, in flying, we talk a lot about the trapping and mitigation of errors inside of crew resource management. So that's another one of these concepts that goes, hey, nobody's perfect on themselves, but if I can create systems on top of systems and different people have different strengths and weaknesses, I can then be able to, that's why we have two crew members that are doing all these actions, because while one person might make a mistake between the two of you, you're able to trap and mitigate the errors of the other, and you're able to find these. Now, someone like Scott Sagan would come out and say, well, normal accident theory, common mode failures, and all those type of things. That's absolutely something we need to continue to look at. And that's why it's it's not acceptable to sit around and just accept the systems that we've had for 30, 40, 50 years and just have those and not do anything to continue to improve the safety, security, and reliability of our nuclear forces. And in, in reality, as we've seen with... Uh you know, with the weapons themselves, with the systems to operate the weapons, we have consistently over time improved, you know, safety and, and reliability. And, you know, the, the, the idea of accidents, you know, it, I, I think it's somewhat telling that you have to look back 40 to 60 years to find, I mean, their most recent example was a 40 year old example. And I promise you that, you know, while we often say, talk about how the weapons themselves are, you know, 1960s and 70s technologies, the, in many respects, the, the systems, the radars, the satellites that are built into this NC3 system are not 40 
to 60 to 1960s technology. They're, they're much more recent. And so I, I oftentimes wonder why folks will use examples from the Cold War and the early Cold War to try to make a point about today's systems, and they're just not the same. I mean, that shows that we've so had what, nuclear learning over the time, and we've we've learned from those mistakes. We've incorporated them into our systems. We've incorporated them into our uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and we continue to try to improve. And that's that's a part of having a learning organization. That's a part of, of in making sure that we have that safe, secure, and effective deterrent. Now, were there other elements of the, so they offer some simulations and part of their argument is they say, hey, we took existing data and we looked at the ICBM force and we think based on our simulations that we ran, we think at least a hundred ICBMs will survive and, and survive and be ready for use. And therefore, you know, we will absorb, you know, 300 high yield Russian ICBMs. And that's, you know, that's no big deal, but we'll still have a hundred left. So by the fact that they've destroyed us and didn't destroy everything, you know, we're now in an advantage. Is that, did you see any problems with the way, with the data, with how they developed or how they run the simulations or would you agree with sort of the premise of that of that uh, experiment? So there were definitely some gaps uh, in how they considered the scenario. I think um, up front, it did speak to one issue, which is that the common idea of ICBMs being very vulnerable to a first strike is just not true. Even in the NPR, it talks about having to have a complicated, coordinated, highly accurate, high yield strike to be able to even attempt to hold the ICBM field at risk. And in the 2018 NPR, it even said that the only country that could consider such an action would be Russia. Now, they point out that, yes, this, this is true. And then they run their simulation. But one of the things they did when they ran their simulation was this was clearly done in a one launch piece. This was done without ISR. This was done without follow-up shots to be able to coordinate. So you end up launching additional weapons on silos that you've already taken out. Uh, where in an actual military operation, if you were going to, let's say, de-alert the ICBM fields, one of the things you'd run across is they would have the time to be able to launch a strike, assess the strike, retarget, and then put additional weapons on the things that actually didn't get taken out. I also thought yeah, that, one of the biggest problems. Okay. That's a, I, I don't want to move beyond that because that's an important point that I, you very accurately, you know, point to is that they're going to be able to strike us, then look at what they did and then retarget and restrike us. And this is absolutely something that was not considered uh, in in their calculation, so that hundred now offers a much smaller set of targets that they have to hit in their follow on strike. So that's that's a great point. Go ahead. 
Oh, and I thought the the other piece is that even going beyond the simulation, it's what happens before the simulation, because they're talking about a lot of what happens after the strike and how does this all work. But as you and I talk about most often, this this is all about what how do I stop the action from ever occurring? How do I deter the strike from happening in the first place? And one of the ways that I deter strikes from happening in the first place is we talk about uh, back when they wrote the deterrence operating concept uh, for the joint staff. They talked about, I have to be able to impose costs. I have to be able to reduce benefits and I have to be able to encourage restraint. Well, launch under attack is one of those places where we go after influencing the adversary's calculation of their probability of success and probability of gain. And by their article actually shows that an adversary that tries to strike the ICBM fields in a splendid first strike is going to have an incredibly difficult process ahead of them to be able to achieve their objective. The difference is, is that when you have to calculate the concept of maybe I launch before you even impact your weapons, it goes from failure to catastrophic failure because now you're attacking empty silos. And if you're going to attack empty silos, why would you even launch the, the attack in the first place? But if I can somehow guarantee via either removal of this option or more, more likely what happens with a lot of the folks in the arms control community is they introduce a concept at which we remove an option and then us on the deterrent side go, well, the adversary is still going to consider this because they're going to look at our capabilities. They're not just going to look at our policies. And they go, you know what? You're right. To be able to further reduce this risk, we need to do something tangible to be able to make the adversary believe in our posture that what we say we're going to do is actually what we're going to do. So then that's how you start walking that argument back and getting to, well, now we need to de-alert so the president doesn't even have the chance to be able to launch under attack and to be able to make our policy seem realistic and believable to an adversary. And I think that that's where you start getting into those, well, now you de-alert. If you de-alert, now you enable follow-on strikes with ISR and target coordination and all of those type of things now make the idea of a disarming strike actually more likely. It also produces a, a rush to uh, re-alert during times of crisis, which is one of those things where you look at crisis stability and, and now you get into some of those first strike incentives because if the adversary sees us bringing our ICBMs back on alert, well, now's the time to strike before we're back on alert and you end up having a rush to alert. Now we're at that time we have to take a quick break. So we're going to do that. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and we've got Derek Williams, Kiwi. Uh, we're talking about a recent article that was in the War on the Rocks advocating de-alerting ICBMs, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence.
All right, and we're back. We're talking with Kiwi about de-alerting ICBMs in a recent study that was written about in War on the Rocks by a couple of faculty at MIT. Now, one of the things that I noticed, and you've sort of already talked about this, is that they sort of in, they look at probabilities of silos remaining undamaged, you know, based on the calculations they have for hardness and, you know, CEPs of Russian uh, ICBMs. But I also wonder why they don't take into account all of the other components of a strike that could render, let's say, their hundred surviving. You've already sort of explained why you don't even think that hundred would survive based on retargeting after we've done battle da- or after the Russians have done battle damage assessment in short order after the initial strike. But they also don't talk about the NC3 system and how the Russians would potentially target that NC3 system early on in a strike such that even if there were a hundred surviving weapons, we might not be able to use those weapons because we lack the ISR. We lack, I mean, how would we know where, which silos were empty and which were, you know, still viable uh, targets if the Russians were to take out our command and control infrastructure, which I would certainly think that they would. And so there's sort of this whole follow-on of this, and they mentioned the thin line, but I don't think they fundamentally understood what it means to have that thin line versus a thick line and our ability to accurately, from both space and terrestrial, assess an adversary and assess what what targets we need to strike, uh, particularly if we set back, let them destroy, you know, our systems, not only the warheads, but our NC2, our space-based ISR, all of that infrastructure that they're going to go after. Uh, so can you talk about that for, for a minute? Yes, I mean, that's why NC3 is so critical, and that's why... Um, the concept of decapitation strikes become so interesting when you're studying the topic of going, well, maybe I have less targets to be able to go after if I just go after command and control. Now, um, back in the 80s, there was actually a really interesting book called Managing Nuclear Operations. And uh, I believe Austin Long just did a update on this uh, recently and did kind of the managing nuclear operations in the 21st century. One of the chapters that was actually written by uh, the recently passed uh, Dr. Carter, former Secretary of Defense, was discussion on this very topic of how hard it actually is and how many targets present inside of NC3. And when you start thinking that you could just get after one node, how you actually start looking at that thin line and all the separate little nodes and all the different ways that we ensure continuity of government and continuity of operations, that it actually becomes a very difficult target to go after. And you go from where you kind of mentally think, hey, I can go after, you know, Washington and I can go after Omaha. And then I've kind of, 
you know, knock the head off the snake, you start quickly finding out that that's a much more complicated problem to be able to go after. Uh, but you will have a lot of fog and friction of war at which you'll be looking at trying to create uh, a solid picture on what does your force posture look like. You'll be trying to get force status updates uh, through either the GOC or through uh, ABNCAP, Airborne National Command Post, to be able to get information as well as uh, back at the NMCC, the National Military Command Center. You're going to be trying to get information to there and to the decision makers to figure out which options within the black book are still available for execution and then what tar- what forces do I need to retarget to be able to pick up those type of options after a first strike? So there definitely would be a fair amount of chaos and difficulty. And that's one of the reasons why we have to continue to look at how can we improve and upgrade and modernize NC3 so that we never lose that connection. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, no calm, no bomb. Like I can have all the warfighters in the world, but if I don't have that connection to the president, if I don't have the connection to the folks that figure out who's who and who actually is still able to fight, well, then I can never get them direction of what I actually want them to achieve uh, as far as national objectives go. Now, another point that they made, and, and I think your point is well taken, and it's one of the things I've often found in these discussions with the, you know, the the disarmament community, which oftentimes tends to be, you know, within the think tanks and academia, is that there's a, a pretty substantial lack of understanding of operations and how things actually happen. And that sort of the academic exercise of thinking about deterrence is very different from the operational practice of both deterrence and planning for nuclear operations. And so, you know, these, when you create an argument that fits in a nice academic box, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's useful, I guess, as a thought exercise, but the reality of actually conducting operations gives you a much more complex and a level of depth that these sort of, thought exercises do not. Now, let me, let me switch. One of their arguments was, well, we're still going to have over a thousand SLBMs that we can, that we can employ and that we can still use. And, you know, submarines are safe. Submarines are, you know, there's, there's no threats. And of course you and I would, would, probably suggest otherwise. And let me just give one example and then I'll turn it over to you. And that is there's, there's some public examples that are in the unclassified literature in which during the cold war two Los Angeles class attack submarines were waiting for Russian submarines, you know, that they thought would be coming out of Russian subpens, And so they picked up the Russian subs and then they started following those subs. And then uh, apparently, according to the to what's published, those Russian subs apparently must have thought they heard something and they they stopped. And the American submarines did not know that the Russian subs had stopped and were listening. And essentially, they they rear ended 
there was a collision between the L.A. class attack sub and the Russian ballistic missile submarine. So this idea that submarines are invulnerable assumes a way that the most vulnerable points for submarines is when they're leaving when they're leaving the sub pens and trying to get to their deep ocean boxes. And it also assumes a way, like if we're operating in, in the South China sea or in places that are not deep ocean boxes, uh, that there is a lot more risk from passive sonar from, you know, our space-based capabilities with high performance computing and our ability to look and look for variation in the ocean surface. There's, there's all of these technologies and there are these periods of vulnerability that we know exist because they existed in the 1980s. And so when they say there is no evidence and I'm quoting that submarines are becoming vulnerable, that simply isn't true. It's just not true. I'll turn it over to you. So, Adam, you bring up a couple of interesting points. I'd like to start with with one of the key ones, which is this 1,000 SLBM number. Well, where that 1,080 SLBM warhead number comes from is treaty math. And as you know, treaty math and operational math do not add up to each other. You have to talk about deployment rates. You have to talk about who's actually out to sea and who's not out to sea. You have to talk about all those different things to be able to understand what warheads are actually going to be available. So, for example, we talk about having a nuclear triad, but day to day, because our bomber force is operating on conventional missions and they're not sitting hard nuclear alert, we really have a day to day operational dyad of ICBMs and SLBMs. And then on top of that, not all SL, not all SSBNs are out at sea at any time. They're just not. Uh, I can't say the official number of how many are out to sea at a time, but it's not the 12 that you account for in treaty math to get that basically 12 boats uh, with that treaty number on there to then end up adding up to that 1880. That's how they come up with that number, but that's not the number that's actually available. And that's definitely not the number that's available for alert. Because you'll have certain boats that are in alert, mod alert, and certain boats that are back actually uh, getting maintenance done. And then you'll have other boats that are in dry dock. And that's why we have the 14. And then you go down to your 12 that are operational at any one time because you have two of them that are out in depot and then you in dry dock. And then you end up with your whatever that other number is that I'm not going to say here that's actually out to sea. And then you have your number that's actually on alert in their patrol area ready to be able to execute. So that's one piece and it, that, that kind of isn't really understood because they think that that it's what the treaty says it is. It's not actually what the operational constraints provide, which is on alert rates. It's the same thing. Uh, just because you have 400 ICBMs doesn't mean you have 400 ICBMs available. Now, ICBMs have a very high alert rate, especially when you consider compared to SLBMs. But even then... The idea that I have every single warhead on alert every single day and nothing's down due to maintenance, uh, that's, that's not understanding the operational and maintenance realities, you know, even though ICBMs are at an exceptionally high alert rate. Yeah, and I know we're running out of time, but the, your, your comment made me think of a couple of, of other things. And first, what you've just said about the SLBM, the SSBN force, 
and SLBMs is equally true. Like you, you said, you know, bombers will be on conventional operations for, but it's also like, you know, the weapon storage areas, you know, most of our, our IC, our bombers are not armed. They don't fly around with nuclear weapons on them, which leads to then a second point, which is it's the only the ICBM force requires a nuclear strike to destroy them. You can destroy the, the, both the submarines and the bomber fleet with purely with conventional weapons. And I would anticipate that in advance of a nuclear strike, we might see attacks, cyber attacks on command and control, attacks on space-based systems, and then conventional, and they do mention hypersonics, and they mention, you know, low observable cruise missiles. And I would suspect that our bomber fleet and our submarines would be attacked by via these conventional weapons. And, you know, S- SSBNs, you know, a torpedo takes out an SSBN. And the Russians have very good ones. So it, it's a level of vulnerability that if they, you know, and, and we just saw there was an article uh, that was in uh, Naval Institute uh, news about Russian capabilities for for nuclear powered submarines with ballistic missiles that can operate off the U.S. coast, and so that that ability to launch low observable cruise missiles against targets in Louisiana or wherever else they may be, you know Georgia or Bremerton, Washington that really can take out a significant portion of that very nuclear fleet that they claim is going to be there as part of our, you know, response. So we're out of time, but I want to give you the last word. So what, what's the final sort of nail in the coffin? Okay. I'd say the final word would be that you have to be able to look at any of these issues not only from an operational and maintenance perspective, but from a deterrent perspective. So think about what is it actually doing to influence the adversary's decision calculus and what's making them choose to be afraid to strike in the first place. And that has to do with the uncertainty of the result of their attack. And the more catastrophic that uncertainty is for them, the better it is for deterrence. And the stronger our force and the more capable it is, then that also means that we're able to impose greater costs and therefore have a greater likelihood of being able to deter. But at the end of the day, we also have to make sure that if deterrence were to fail, that we'd still be able to achieve U.S. national objectives in the face of that horrific day. And that's really what we're talking about here is the ability to be able to be there at that most horrific day and to be able to effectively deter those adversaries from conducting those attacks. All right. Well said. So thanks, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Derek Williams, better known as Kiwi. Thanks for joining us and for having this great discussion. Uh, it was, it's one of those topics that comes up over and over and over. And no matter how frequently you say you're getting it wrong, it's, you know, it's, it almost reminds me of that you know, Joseph Goebbels said, if you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, people will believe it. And that's one of those sort of talking points that gets hit over and over and over and over again. 
that America has a launch on warning policy when in reality we just don't. And there's many reasons why de-alerting, which is what was advocated, would be a bad idea. So thanks for coming on to discuss that. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, the listeners, for listening to this episode of Nuclecast. Well, that was a great discussion with uh, Derek Williams, Kiwi. Uh, he always, every time I think I understand something, he always brings in particularly insightful thoughts about the operational side of an issue. And he's always better read than I am. So that's one of the great things I like about Kiwi is how, just how well read he always is. And so I think, he, you know, he did a really good job of dissembling the argument made over this issue of should we de-alert the ICBM force? And I don't know about you, but I walked away thinking, nope, don't do it. There's a lot of good reasons why we shouldn't and why, you know, great Americans looking to do what's best for the country, but why the folks that wrote this article we discussed are just not correct. Found it informative. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.